This episode is sponsored by Paleo Valley's pasture-raised chicken sticks. I'm super excited to share Paleo Valley's brand new pasture-raised chicken sticks. These chicken sticks are made from 100% pasture-raised chicken and organic spices that are preserved using natural fermentation rather than preservatives. So yes, no fake stuff or additives here. These chicken sticks are sourced from regenerative family farms raised on American pastures and each stick is free of chemicals, antibiotics, pesticides, and added hormones. Paleo Valley's chicken sticks are a perfect snack packed with 7 grams of protein and frankly, a great value without skimping on quality. Make sure to support this podcast and head over to paleovalley.com slash nwj and use code nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks again for listening and supporting this podcast. And I think there has to be a lot of cognitive dissonance with um, healthcare and nutrition professionals. Because it'd be one thing if it's like, hey, we're feeding people the standard American diet and everyone's lean and healthy and happy and we're pretty, you know, absence of addiction and eating disorders. Like, okay, cool, great. But it's like the opposite. You know, we've been doing the same thing and it is absolutely not working. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. My name is Judy Cho and I'm board certified in holistic nutrition. And I have a private practice where we focus on root cause healing. And that often starts with the carnivore cures, all meat elimination diet. Today, I had the pleasure of sitting down with my friend and registered dietitian, Michelle Hearn. She was on my channel a while ago. I'll make sure to link to our first talk. Uh, she talks a lot more in detail about her journey and why she advocates and a lot of the truths that go on in hospitals and dietary care when you're in the medical space. Michelle Hearn is a registered and licensed dietitian with 11 years of experience as a clinical acute care dietitian, a lead dietitian in psychiatric care, and an outpatient dietitian. Michelle is also an avid endurance athlete, and she eats an animal-based diet. You'll see in this conversation that Michelle talks about her history as a person struggling with anorexia, and now how she's giving back as she's healed on an animal-based diet, how she shares how she's done a study that supports or a case study that shares how anorexia gets reversed or is in remission with a ketogenic diet. We talk about the details of the study and how these people are healing and how it is an option. So many people online have said to me that are against a carnivore ketogenic or low-carb diet that this diet is not truly healing, but that it's a band-aid because you're restricting foods. And in order to truly have healing with food, you need to be able to eat everything in moderation. That is just not ideal because when we eat sufficient amounts of sugar, it becomes inflammatory. And as you're trying to heal the body, which then will allow you to heal your mind, it is not an ideal place to be. Additionally, sugar has been proven over and over that it has addictive components. So when someone is sick, it is not ideal to be eating tons of sugar and foods that cause more inflammation. We also talk about Michelle's children's book. It is so cute and I'm so excited for you guys to learn about it. So I will not share much more than that. Let's get right into the interview. Hey, Michelle, it's so good to have you back on my channel. You have so many good works and news in the um, <laughs> out there. So I wanted to have you back on. If you could introduce yourself for the people that did not watch your last episode, I will link it to in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, my name is Michelle. Um, I'm a registered and licensed dietitian. Uh, you know, my health journey began when I was 12 years old. I was diagnosed with anorexia nervosa. I was five feet tall, 57 pounds. 
was uh, immediately placed in inpatient treatment, fed a 24-hour tube feeding, um, and, you know, followed the standard American diet, was immediately put on a relatively high-calorie, high-carb, high-sugar diet. And I was a 12-year-old in um, that facility. I was put on seven different medications for gastrointestinal issues, depression, anxiety, OCD. And at that time, you know, I was told, even if you recover, even if you recover, you will um, likely deal with eating disorder thoughts, you know, racing thoughts around food, some behaviors the rest of your life. And so I just thought, you know, my gosh, I'm going to have to become this like high functioning person with an eating disorder. You know, for the most part, that was accurate. I struggled all through my adolescence and early adulthood, you know, constantly thinking about food, obsessing about it, counting calories. Um, you know, I did become, I became an athlete. I became a distance runner and I wanted to become a dietitian because I knew nutrition was powerful. But, you know, I, I shared yeah on the last podcast that, you know, when I got into the field, there were just so many things that didn't make sense that kind of confused me. You know, for example, we'd go into the room of somebody with type 2 diabetes, which is a disease where you have, you know, high blood sugar, too much glucose or sugar in the blood. And the remedy for that, the prescription that dietitians were supposed to teach was teaching a patient to eat carbohydrates consistently throughout the day and then dosing them with insulin. And I remember just as a student just asking like, oh, wow, should we, should we just teach them to not eat so many carbohydrates? And that was like blasphemy, you know, like, oh my gosh. But, you know, you're young, you're a student. And then when we went into the room with somebody in the ICU, you know, I flipped over the two feed ingredients. I was like, oh my God, look at this. This is the same stuff I was fed as a 12-year-old the number one ingredients of like standard two feeding formulas are, you know, sugar, maltodextrin, corn syrup, soy protein, canola oil. And um, that's the same. I mean, I'm, that was when I was 24. Now I'm 40. It's still the same. And I was just told like, oh, it's not about quality. It's just making sure they get enough protein and calories. Like it's all kind of half dozen another. <laughs> right. And yeah, so it was really hard. You know, I became a dietitian. I practiced in the clinical setting and I just saw the cycle of sickness. People were not getting better. Doctors were constantly saying like, oh, it's not the guidelines. It's the patients aren't following them. If they would just eat more fruits and vegetables, more whole grains, they would be better. And I saw a lot of people genuinely trying to follow the guidelines and their diabetes got worse. Their heart failure got worse, you know, would go into kidney failure. But, you know, in 2019, that's when I had kind of my own health crisis. I was trying to qualify for the Olympic trials and the marathon and my health just fell apart. Like I went from being able to run 10, 15 miles to breaking out in cold sweats. Um, couldn't run a couple miles. My anxiety, my lifetime anxiety went from being, you know, on a scale of one to 10, maybe a five to six to 10. Most days I was having panic attacks. I had to call out of work. Um, yeah. And then, and then finally I, had a moment where I basically didn't know what to do. It's just my body hurt. I was in pain. You know, woke up in the middle of the night, ended up going and getting a bunch of ice, putting it in the bathtub and uh, making an ice bath. And that's when, you know, my wife came in and was like, I think we need to do something different. I think this is ridiculous. And then that moment, that's when I decided I was no longer going to be an athlete. I was like, this is ridiculous. I'm 36. I shouldn't be trying to be a competitive runner. At that point, you know, I was eating a lot of carbohydrates, about 400 grams a day. And I figure if I wasn't going to, you know, run, maybe I should follow a lower carbohydrate diet. And that's what led me down, you know, to where we are today, discovering ketogenic and uh, carnivore diets and unveiling just a massive amount of research we have specifically for ketogenic diets. And, you know, that completely changed not only how I ate, but how I practice as a dietitian. It's interesting that you brought up 
you were eating 400 grams of carbohydrates, but you, and you were an athlete because there's, um, so like Dr. Saladino, one of the reasons why people say he needs the carbohydrates is that he, I think he surfs a lot or he's like a big athlete. And so therefore his body needs that those carbohydrates. I have no idea, but I think he eats two to 300 grams of no grains, but I think it's like fruit and honey. Do you think he needs it or? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, carbohydrates are really interesting. Um, we know that the the recommendation for carbohydrates, like the standard American diet, right, is a carbohydrate base. And then um, I, I saw that the most recent NHANES data is that 96%, 96% of our population is unhealthy, metabolically unhealthy, right. meaning they have some type of like high blood pressure, high blood sugar. If you're, a, you know, a metabolically healthy person, you know, carbohydrates can actually be a really powerful tool for activity. You know, now I'm an ultra runner, I'm an endurance athlete. And so I, I use carbohydrates like, uh, strategically, you know, I use them around my activity. Does he need two to 300 grams? I don't know. <laughs> well, do I have you, no idea. When you do ultra running, do you eat 200 grams in a sitting or like throughout the day? Um, I personally don't No, okay, okay. you know, so my, you can do it without it. Oh yeah. Well, okay. and I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm female. I'm probably, you know, I'm smaller than he is. I know my coach, um, Zach, Zach better is an ultra runner and, kind of at the higher end of his carbohydrate days are about 150. We consider that still like low carbohydrate in the context of like ultra endurance sports. Right. And that also is being used like, um, you know, once again, just around activity. So I know that you have a study out where you talk about some of the anorexia and I think there's other cases. Can you tell us about this study that you published? And that's so exciting. Yeah. Oh, it was super exciting. I actually have to give so much credit to Nick Norwitz. You know, he, originally kind of approached me about that and said, Hey, you know, I feel like we can use what you've already talked about in your book. And, you know, we can, there's, there's people in this community that are sharing their stories about, you know, reversing eating disorders using a, you know, animal-based diet, a car, really heavy. We, we um, specifically did like people that were heavy animal-based, you know, when I think about it, it's super exciting because the kind of dogma is that you just, you can't, you know, utilize a ketogenic diet or a carnivore diet um, for somebody with specifically anorexia for an eating disorder. And the belief behind that is, well, if you ask somebody with a dysfunctional relationship with food to quote unquote restrict food, like not eat grains or not eat this, that you're going to exacerbate the eating disorder. And so what we had hypothesized, um, well, first of all, you know, these, these, this was a case study. So these were people that actually had already used the eating, dis- you know, used the carnivore diet and, you know, were in remission. And we defined remission as they were weight restored for like at least five years. You oh, know, they had followed this way. Yeah. Cause you know, wh- what we often see is people, uh, you know, this is actually one of the biggest problems specifically with anorexia is the relapse rate is incredibly high, right. you know, and, um, statistically people with anorexia, there's about a 50% chance of relapse and then the relapse is defined as your weight is actually low enough where you would be, um, you know, for the DSM five, like diagnosed as anorexic. And, you know, unfortunately someone myself who's you know, had anorexia struggle with an eating disorder, I would say the rate of engaging in behaviors is closer to a hundred percent. You know, I certainly had my own issues with relapsing, losing weight, things like that. And so we, we came up kind of just with this hypothesis, like, well, first of all, we we wanted to ask the question, like, why are these people doing so much better? And this wasn't certainly somebody that just had like a mild case of anorexia. These were people with extreme, 
you know, cases, cases where they were hospitalized several times. Um, one individual, you know, had severe suicidal ideation. Her BMI got down to 11, was, uh, refu- several hospitals refused to take her on because her weight was so low. Oh, wow. So, you know, and of course, these are people also who had, and when you're in treatment, you're put on the standard American diet. So the question we wanted to ask was, why did that not work? And why does this work? So anorexia really has been framed just as more of like a psychiatric disorder. Like something is wrong with your brain, something is wrong to where you're just, you, you're unable basically to, to eat your own, you know, you deal with body dysmorphia, something's, something's wrong there. So kind of the hypothesis had been like, if we get you weight restored, if we can put you through all this therapy, if we can deal with your trauma or whatever potentially caused this, then you'll recover. And of course, we're not seeing that, <laughs> you know, with the high rates of, of uh, relapse. So our hypothesis was like, there is something about this diet, this way of eating that is actually impacting the brain. And for that, we were actually framing um, anorexia as not just like a, a psychiatric do- disorder, but also something that has to do with your metabolism. And when I say that, kind of breaking it down, I like to use the example of epilepsy. If you think of like babies, you know, babies are born with epilepsy and it's not like they did anything wrong. It's not like they had a bad diet or whatever. It's just a genetic disorder. And if you feed, you know, a baby, a toddler, somebody that has epilepsy, a high carbohydrate diet, they have seizures. And if you feed them a ketogenic diet, a very low carbohydrate diet where their uh, body and brain is going to be fueled off ketones, they no longer have seizures. And the research is very good with this. You know, we've even seen people with that are resistant to medications that actually stop seizing when they are put on ketogenic diets. So our hypothesis was similar. Like, is it something in the brain? Is it something that when they're now being fueled on ketones, their brain is actually able to to function um, to where they're able to experience calm, where they're able to, you know, kind of heal their relationship with food. And then there was also the other kind of a secondary hypothesis that this way of eating is so anti-inflammatory that it's actually healing their gastrointestinal system. You know, most now we have really good research that a lot of your uh, your gut <laughs> also impacts your brain, your microbiome, right? And so, you know, when you put somebody that has a very damaged gut and anybody who's been starving themselves or binging and purging has a damaged gastrointestinal system. If you feed them lots of sugars and flours and even diets that are really high in fiber can actually aggravate that GI system. And so by, by putting them on these diets, and, and one thing I do want to say is it is a well-formulated diet. Like, I, unfortunately, you know, I've seen people that are struggling with eating disorders that are like, oh, great. I can only, you know, I'll just eat chicken and, you know, you don't want to make this a low calorie or a low fat diet. You can make any quote unquote diet, you know, a restrictive diet, but these were very high calorie, very high fat animal-based diets. And we found that they not only help heal the gastrointestinal system, but, you know, the hypothesis being that it's also, um, you know, modulating something in your brain. And when I say something, <laughs> we don't know, you know, we don't, we don't know exactly what the mechanism is, just like we don't know, um, you know, there was a study with people with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder that had incredible results when going on ketogenic diets. We don't know exactly what's happening, but we are, you know, hypothesis is something very positive is happening and that it needs further research. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, the gut brain access, the connection, the neurotransmitters that are mostly in your gut and they communicate with your brain. I mean, I think so much of that will impact mental health. I mean, I struggled with an eating disorder. It wasn't anorexia, but 
I went through a lot of the experience you did. And it was, and so a lot of people that don't know me on the internet will say, oh my gosh, she traded one eating disorder for another being um, on a carnivore diet, but it's just not true. I think I healed my gut because I used to purge and, and then it, the fat supported my brain. And of course, like I'm, I can't prove that in that sense, but your hypothesis makes sense even for me, which when I struggled with my eating disorder and now I, I recovered over five years and I just, you know, make sure to be diligent about any habits, but generally speaking, I don't have that obsession over food anymore. And so I do think it works. The cases that you've seen, how long did it take for them to be on a ketogenic diet for them to start healing and maybe using less behaviors or just improvement overall? Yeah. So it, it definitely varied. And I, I do want to first validate that, you know, you made the point with, um, with binge eating disorder or with bulimia, you know, there's very good case study by Dr. Sethi Shabani, um, you know, three individuals with severe, like lifelong binge eating disorder went into remission on a ketogenic diet. Um, yeah. And like you said, you get outsiders being like, Oh my God, they went from binging and now they, you know, now they have this other restrictive behavior. And it's just, it's almost laughable because it's like, if you've ever struggled with any type of eating disorder, addiction, or it, it just dominates your life. Every you're thinking about it, you're obsessing it, you're worried. So just to be in like a place where you're calm around food is like the most beautiful gift. But yeah, back to your question. How long did it take? Um, you know, interestingly, you know, some people it's really quick. You know, some people notice like, wow, I immediately am not feeling so um, you know, dealing with the obsession, dealing with the racing thoughts. Um, and you know, some people it took a little bit longer. And, you know, I know myself, somebody who'd struggled for decades with anxiety, uh, it was relatively quick. It was about three weeks that things oh, wow. vastly improved. But there's also that, you know, transition period where, especially if you're somebody who's been high, very restrictive or if you're eating a holy crap load of sugar, you know, there, there's that transition period that can be pretty uncomfortable. Right. Were there any other factors you looked at besides the diet? So was, were, for example, I think therapy, the mental health side is so important with eating disorders, not to say that that's the only answer, because I, I do think a lot of inflammation in the gut and in the head also affect um, people's propensity to possibly have an eating disorder. But did you guys also check or consider mental health? Was that all consistent across the board? Yeah. So, you know, we went through, we did a pretty intense dive into their their history because, okay. you know, when you're, <laughs> I was surprised, you know, when you're publishing a, a paper, they want everything. It was mm-hmm. really interesting to me that we had to go back to the people in the case studies and ask for records from like decades ago. We're like, we need you to find that hospital, say this, you know, just because, wow. you know, when they, um, when you bring forward something like that, you don't ever want to have somebody question anything specific or strange, you know, and I think some of the most interesting things we found when we went way, way back is um, a few of our people had like some pretty scary, like, and I'll get to your mental health, but one person um, was starting to have liver liver damage. Their liver enzymes were really rough that actually was able to be reversed. Uh, But all of these individuals had actually had some pretty intense counseling. You know, one individual had been, I think, in five different inpatient treatment centers. And of course, anytime you're in an inpatient treatment center for a relatively long period of time, you're going to be seeing a mental health support person, you know, at least weekly. So one of the things that I think changes, you know, we know that your your the brain is moldable, right? The, the brain is plastic, it can engage in neuroplasticity, but it also has to have the the nutrition, it has to have the neurotransmitters and the fat and all the cofactors. When you restrict 
you know, you're not eating most of the time people are very restrictive when it comes to any type of meat, especially red meat. You're not getting, you know, the folate, the B12, the carnitine, the tarring, all those things that your, your brain needs to make neurotransmitters. So it was kind of one of all, all the thing that Nick and I were talking about. Is it, is it you're getting enough like actual calories and fuel, but also possibly, you know, your brain's finally creating neurotransmitters to where you're actually able to take in that information. You know, it doesn't help if you're sitting in a therapy session or you're trying to learn new behaviors, but your brain can't actually retain that information. No, that makes so much sense. Since publishing, have you had any of the eating disorder advocates, the dietitians, come at you saying this is so dangerous for the eating <laughs> disorder community? Yes. Um, well, you know what? What we found interesting is, and then we kind of like readied ourselves. So, you know, we're like, all right, we're putting it out there. We, you know, we kind of had a plan. Um, but I would say about 98% was really positive. Oh, that's um, and, and I think because mostly people are like looking for answers and they feel frustrated and they feel scared. And one thing that's interesting about treatment for eating disorders is it's not standardized. You know, most of uh, treatment for like type 2 diabetes, congestive heart failure, kidney failure, if you go to a hospital in Texas or New York, you're going to get relatively the same treatment. Eating disorders, it's like one half dozen another. It could be, you know, <laughs> you I might get that. this here and that. Oh, yeah, it's completely not standardized, which is really interesting. Um, and that's why people, you know, who, who have been in multi uh, different centers can tell you like, oh, we did this here. We did that there. We tried other. So that's one thing that's curious. So. I think uh, a lot of the community was just, is just open. Like they're like, we don't know what to do. Tell us. But of course there are several dietitians that said like, like, just like you said earlier, like, Oh, awesome. These people are treating one severe eating disorder for another severe eating disorder. Um, and we even put that in the study. We said, we realized this is non-conventional, right? Like we decided we got to have a paragraph about this, but you know, in light of just the absolute failure of our current way of doing things. Right. We just have to be open. It, it's amazing to me, you know, in this nutrition space, how just awful our guidelines are at every single disorder. I mean, everything right. is getting worse, but we have these health professionals, dietitians, doctors, other people that just hold on to them so tightly. It's very silly in my opinion, but yeah, most of the response has actually been good. So when I was in the eating disorder facility and I, I, didn't, I wasn't overnight because insurance didn't define me as that I needed to be, but I was there for 10 to 12 hours. And in the stint I was there, there were so many, mostly girls that ended up having to go to higher care where they had to be hospitalized or they were just more sick. And it was so obvious that what we were eating was not working because we had to have every single meal there plus multiple snacks. And the only snack we did have outside of it was at home was the evening snack. And yeah. if we try to restrict carbs, we were considered that's an eating disorder. But if you wanted to be vegetarian, totally supportive. And back then I didn't know anything about nutrition. So I said, okay, this makes sense. And the dietitian in there told me the only way you could be defined as healed is if you don't have any struggles or triggers or even the mental stuff for a good amount of years. And I was like, well, I'm never going to heal because I have <laughs> this battle in my head all day long, whether I'm using their intuitive, um, intuitive feeling or the mindful eating, all of those tools, I would still obsess about things. And I think it's because I was under eating and eating insufficient calories. And now thinking back, knowing the nutrition, I know they would have us eat like some type of junk food. It was our challenge food. And then we would have to go after dinner. So we ate 
this microwave pizza or, and then a cupcake after if we had the challenge food. And if you didn't eat that, they'd give you the insured drinks with, like you said, the seed oil and the sugars. And, and then we all went into this small room after no talking. And then we had to talk about how we're feeling. And so I just imagined, wow, we probably had 200 plus grams of carbohydrates in that meal. And then we're asked to stay quiet and say, are you being triggered right now? Do you have an emotional response? And if we wrote, yes, I'm anxious in my skin, which the food that we eat kind of will do that anyway. But if we did, then we're not healing. And so it just logically doesn't make sense. Oh, like I, I almost like had flashbacks. So when I was in treatment, you know, the, the, the beating you with insure and the same thing, you know, they would say, Oh, we're gonna have a pizza. And then you had to have a cookie. And then, you know, everyone's heart is racing because we're just, right. we're jacked up on carbs. <laughs> and uh, they ask you, do you feel calm? But yeah, I even remember as a, a 12 year old, like at first, you know, I'm 12. I'm just like, no, I feel awful. And then another woman there told me like, Hey, don't say that. Like, tell them you feel fine and lie that's the only way to get out of here. You know? Oh yeah. Okay. Sorry. So it's just like, what a thing, you know, we, we feed people these and same thing. You know, there's a woman I interviewed who said, they told her you were, you will know you are well when you can eat all foods in moderation. And she said, you know, I did everything they told me I'd be fine, but then I'd have a cookie or like a tiny treat. And she's like, I would just go off the rails. I would go I'd throw it in the trash. I'd get it out of the trash and eat it. And so like, what a horrible thing we've done to so many people to tell them that there's something fundamentally wrong with them if they can't moderate high sugar, high processed foods that are literally designed to override your brain and body's ability to moderate. (laughs) So yeah, so many people, like if you had told me in 2019, you know, before I started a, you know, carnivore diet, now I'm just considered like a low carb, you know, animal based person that, Hey, if you eat this way, you, your anxiety is going to be 99% better. Your body's going to recover. You're going to be healthier. You're going to be happier. Like, Oh, but you, you have to eat this way. You you can't be eating a lot of processed carbs and sugar. I'd be like, sign me up. (laughs) You know, like I wouldn't have believed you. I would have thought you were crazy, but it's amazing that I feel like we are just, we're keeping people from healing. You know, you always want to believe the best, but I've been in this business long enough to know that it's all about profit. And we have so many studies, you know, this, what came out with the Washington Post recently, the dietitians were being paid to promote sugar on their, you know, social media. And so it's like, are we, we're keeping people perpetually sick. And that's the only way you can make money in healthcare. We don't, um, we don't give people opportunities to monetize health really, but it's just really sad because, you know, we're suffering. The people that are suffering are the the people that really need help. So what do you think this means for the keto carnivore community as, you know, more studies and case studies are released? Do you think it'll help some dietitians start possibly using? I don't know. I mean, the um, hopeful part of me says yes. I think I think it's hard to argue with results, right? Like, And that's why I think it's so important that we keep sharing our stories and keep sharing testimonies because people are hurting in this you know, world. There's people with severe depression or severe anxiety or have been, you know, living with a severe eating disorder is like, you know, being in chains. So by you and I sharing our stories and other people sharing our stories and by saying, hey, look, here's a published case study. I think we're offering people hope. My concern and just my kind of realism is this, you know, you still talk to any traditional dietitian and they'll tell you that's keto is bad for your heart. And, you know, they just they just spout out all this stuff that has no basis in reality or science. So so I, I remain hopeful, but, you know, a little bit skeptical. 
<laughs> no, I totally get it. So our kids go to this really small school, but it's the, the mindset of the people are very different. Cause they, I don't know if you want to call them red pill, but they're all on specific diets and you could tell. So there's, there's some plant-based. So it's just, all of us have had something that's happened in our life where we don't follow mainstream content in a sense. And there are people that are animal-based or ketogenic in the school, but there was one person that is like a doctor and fully against the carnivore diet. And it was interesting because the logic was just, well, they work with herbals. And so I get it. I get that. It's like, how do you marry that? If plants are killing you, how do you use herbals? And in, I think plants can be medicine in the, the, the certain ingredient in a plant, not that the plant itself that we should eat it. So, sure. so I can see that struggle, but the part that ups, like frustrated me was you've never tried it. You've never tried it. You've never had a patient try it, but your mind was like, that's crazy. You need fiber, you know, all the, all the stuff that we truly believe, but there are people in our school that I don't have to vouch for it. So I try not to be combative. And there are a handful of parents that are saying, well, I don't know much about the science, but I just lost 50 pounds. I have all these diseases that are in remission now. And so I just stay quiet because I just need the stories to be shared (laughs) that it's so powerful. And since that, there are two families that were on no specific diets, but suffering with illness. And two of them are now eating a carnivore diet. So I just think that these stories are really powerful, but you're right. There's so many people that are so resistant to change, but it drives me bonkers because they never try it before they start knocking it. Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. Yeah, it's really interesting. We definitely live in a society um, that people get very set in their ways. You know, I think that's one of the the things that I really try, you know, as a nutrition professional to be open. You know, I'm always say like, I'm not always right. You know, I'm open to growing, changing, evolving. And I think when we get too set in like very one specific, like this is the only way, especially when something's not working, you know, that's probably the biggest uh, disconnect to me. And I think there has to be a lot of cognitive dissonance with um, healthcare and nutrition professionals. Because it'd be one thing if it's like, hey, we're feeding people the standard American diet and everyone's lean and healthy and happy and we're pretty, you know, absence of addiction and eating disorders. Like, okay, cool, great. But it's like the opposite. You know, we've been doing the same thing and it is absolutely not working, you know? And so I think you're right. I think people sharing their stories, sharing their testimonies, that is the most powerful thing you can do in my opinion. I think living by example and then, you know, because people are curious, you know, and if people ask like, ah, I see you're eating, you know, meat, like, why are you just eating that? You know, I'll usually, I usually just have a few talking points like, hey, you know, since I started eating a lot more meat and fat, my anxiety is so much better. You know, people need to hear these stories for sure. No, I totally agree. It's I heard the saying recently, I thought it was so smart, but it's not that we need to be more educated. Obviously, there needs to be some amount of education. But 
if it was truly just about education, librarians would be gazillionaires. And it just <laughs> makes so much sense to me. It's the story with a little bit of education that makes it really powerful. So it totally makes sense. With that conversation, you are writing, or I don't know if you published it yet, but you're writing a children's book, which I'm super excited for because <laughs> thank you. our children are being fed like the Charlotte's Web where don't kill animals. Animals are your friends and we, we want to love on them and, you know, just freeing animals. And, and so I think we really need children's books where it's okay to, you know, be able to eat meats, but still love animals. Like the two can coexist, but if you can share about your book. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate that. I'm super excited about it. So the inspiration from the book came, I was on a run and they had just announced that they were coming out with um, medications for children with type two diabetes. And I think it was like kids 12 and under. And I was so angry. <laughs> and of course, you know, I'm not anti-medication. I know they have their place, but I feel, you know, my, my thought was like, God, how can we take a problem? You know, children with high blood sugar, and create another problem. Right. Let's give them this, you know. And when I was on my run, I was like, I want to write a book. I'm going to write a children's book. It's going to be about kids who reverse their diabetes. And I was like, oh, that's boring. And then I ran past, um, there was a sign, a woman running for mayor and her last name was Fox. And I was like, foxes, foxes that have diabetes. And so the, the premise of the children's book is basically that the Fox family lives in the forest. They're super happy. This fox from the city comes in and is like, he's super buff. And he's like, hey, come work for me in my feel-good foods factory. So he owns this factory where they make processed foods. And the fox family is super excited because he tells them if they eat all these foods, he can they can be buff like him. And they're the best foods. And so they go to the, they move to the city and they eat the, you know, the foods. And not shockingly, um, they all start feeling pretty crappy. And they're like, man, we don't feel very good. What's going on? And little Freddy Fox uh, gets type two foxabetes and ends up in the fox middle. And he sees the foxetician and the diet, oh. you know. And of course, we do a lot of alliteration throughout the book. But kind of the take home message is, you know, they they don't heal until they return to what they were doing. And you know, it also Grandpa Frankie is the one who says, like, "Hey guys, like this doesn't make sense." It was my goal, kind of like they do in Disney and Pixar, to where it's like it's a fun story for kids. It's like, oh look, little Freddie, he figured it out and got better. But also that parents can read it and be like, oh, holy crap, <laughs> maybe we ought to maybe we ought to eat a little better, right? And it's not necessarily like a, a low carb or carnivore uh, type book, but it is just really honing in on avoiding processed foods. And you know, in the fox for the fox family hunting and fishing. They hunt fish and forage. And that is a huge part of, you know, their diet. And, you know, I worry, like, just like you expressed earlier, as we kind of, um, we've gotten to a weird place where it's like, we're trying to teach people that eating animals is mean and eating animals is bad, or it's bad for the environment. Right. Where in reality, humans were designed, you know, just how our physiology works. We utilize animal proteins and fats incredibly well. You know, in my opinion, my research, everything I've seen, you know, animal protein is one of the best things you can consume as a human. And so as we've moved away from that, you know, we've become sicker and sicker as a society. So the goal is like moving back towards, you know, your ancestral diet. I love it. I love it. Um, I, I'm excited to see your book. And then is it going to be like, where can we get your book? It's going to be on Amazon. Okay. So right now that will probably be, and I don't know if we'll be able to do like a Barnes and Noble or something else, but um, but yeah, it's fun. It's the illustrations are great. You know, obviously it's full color, you know, relatively short. You know, my first book is it would take you a few days to hammer it out. This will take you about, 
you know, five to seven minutes, probably. <laughs> I love it. I'll read it to my boys or actually they could read on their own, but I'll, uh, okay. I'll and they'll love it. Cause my younger kid calls diabetes, diabetes. So it'll be, <laughs> so he'll know what exactly you're talking about. And it just, it, for even my children, it'll usher the point home that when they want those super ultra processed foods, which is everywhere, um, mm-hmm. that they know it's not the best for them. And it's, it's, a, it's a struggle, but yeah, I, I think it's great. And we need it's such more. a struggle. Yeah. It's, and I think you made a good point. It's everywhere. Yeah. I can't, I can't imagine being a young person. I mean, it, it was ubiquitous when I was a kid, you know, 25 years ago, but now it's like, holy cow. I mean, we didn't, it was just starting to get into schools. Um, but now I don't think you can't go anywhere without being like inundated with something. Right. Yeah. The other day we were at a clothing store and then the line that you walk through to get to the cashier is lined with candy. So it's just, okay, this is a clue. Even in my veterinarian now has this like mocha, free mocha machine, you know, I'm like, what? I just need a, I just need a check up on my dog, you know, like, oh my God. Yeah. It's insane. Ridiculous. Um, On Amazon. I forgot what triggered me, but I basically searched on animal-based books and there's really none. I think there's a few children's cookbooks, but really there's not much. And then I even searched like paleo kids books and there really is not much. And so I was like, let's just see what the plant-based community has. And there are so many books on vegans and they show why you don't want to even eat fish and the love for these fish. They belong to schools that are a family. And, and, and then what was worse was there were reviews where you see pictures of the mom with the child reading the book. And they're like, this is so good. We need more books like this to teach the kids why it's so wrong to eat animals and fish and it was so heartbreaking. And that's when I told you offline that, oh, I want to do a kid series too, that hopefully, and it, it's not like we need to be carnivore because I don't believe that for children, but we need to change the narrative that meat is bad and yes, and guilting our children to feel that they shouldn't be eating their best friend. That it, yeah, it, I, I, I have such strong opinions on, especially with kids, you know, there, you have such a small window for brain development yes. for that myelin sheath in your brain. And that requires DHA kids need, you know, they need the, they need perform vitamin A, they need D3, K2 collagen, things that are just not available in right. the plant kingdom. And if you don't eat meat, you know, you, every human needs to get a certain amount of, you know, calories and nutrition, and what happens when you eliminate meat and you eliminate, you know, saturated fats, you know, you end up, kids aren't going to just be eating 2000 calories of kale. I mean, if you did, you get really sick, but they're going to be eating processed foods. They're going to be eating right. a lot of breads and rices and noodles. And you know what, we know what that can lead to issues with, you know, high blood sugar and diabetes and obesity, and then issues with your brain, because you need right. the components to make neurotransmitters. So yeah, it's interesting that and also, you know, of course, you and I both know that veganism doesn't doesn't eliminate animal death. You know, I think it, statistically it was about 9 billion animals die for vegan crops, you know, kale, quinoa. And we're not talking cows and horses, but, you know, or cows and bison. We're talking uh, birds, gophers, rabbits, things like that. So there's just this really strange ideology that you shouldn't eat animals, but the way we eat kills animals. Like, I don't, I don't get it. It's, it's very strange. It's not good for you. And I really worry about kids being raised without nutrient dense animal protein. We asked our kids what 
a lot of the children bring. So the, what I was saying about the diets is most specific to the adults. I think the kids are still fed just whatever they want because they're quote unquote healthy. And they told me that most kids just bring carrots and peanut butter jelly sandwiches and sometimes like lunchables, but there's very little meat and it's not like they purposely are hiding the meat. It's just, we don't eat a ton of meat. It's not very normalized in our culture to eat a ton of meat at lunch, maybe you have a sandwich with a couple slices of meat, maybe some cheese, but even that is not sufficient for children that are then not eating dinner for several hours. So I just, yeah, it's, um, I think the work you're doing is so important to just shed light that the way that we're eating is broken. And there's so much illogical arguments to why (laughs) we shouldn't be eating certain foods. And it's, it's, it bothers me. And, and you're so right about, so my son, the other day, he he's on this fix where he doesn't like eggs. And it's very weird because he normally does. So I've tried every which way to change up eggs to make him eat it because there's so much nutrition and minerals in eggs. And so he said to me, instead of eating the egg, can I have like a snack? And I told him it's not the same thing just because it's like 200 calories or, you know, 70 calories Mm -hmm. each. They're not the same thing. A popsicle is not the same. Even though there's no food diet and it's all natural sugars that derive from food, it is not the same nutrition. And so we had a good conversation about that. But I just think the average parent will go, sure, if you don't want to eat this, then go eat that. But it's, you know, and it's, it's, it's unfortunate. Yeah. I, and I think a lot of people don't know they're, there's, you know, if they're just using the guidelines, it's like, oh, we'll just give them cereal. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, I, my nephew is type one diabetic. So he has had a continuous glucose monitor since he was, he's 11 now, since he was very young. And you could very easily see, you know, when he had something high carbohydrates that how quickly that would impact his blood sugar. So, you know, we're giving our kids these like low protein, you know, like you said, peanut butter and jelly, granola bars and carrots. <laughs> they're going to be hungry okay. in a few hours and they're going to be, you know, the, the diagnosis of ADHD is going through the roof lately. And once again, I'm not a doctor. I'm sure that it, I'm not saying it's not a real disease, but I, I would question like, will these kids be calmer if we just gave them some like protein and fat <laughs> versus right. probably some of the garbage we feed them, you know? So oh, I totally agree. Uh, yeah, we got a long way to go with our kiddos. So you hit a big milestone birthday wise. And has any of your I and I know maybe it's more of the athletics side of it, but has any of your dietary changes shifted as you've celebrated? <laughs> not in 40. <laughs> I feel old. Um, you know, not not too much. I would uh, you know, I'm training right now for another a fifty mile race, um, the beginning of November. So, you know, I consume between kind of similar to what my coach does, between about fifty and hundred and fifty grams of carbohydrates a day, just depending on the training load, you know, certainly more on those like really heavy days. But I I still eat a lot of eat, <laughs> you know, a lot of um I would say ruminant animals, red meat, specifically beef is still just a huge portion of my diet. Uh, But I'm, you know, I'm always open to if things change in the future, if you know, whether I need more carbohydrates, more fat, more protein, I'm always, I'm never just set in one way of things. I love it. Yes, exactly. I love it. I think it's silly to be dogmatic because we're all so different and some things will work for others. And I don't ever need 150 because I'm not an ultra marathoner and I don't work out that hard, even if I do. So I know that because I often sit because I'm working, that maybe the 
ketogenic version of carnivore works better for me, but not on all days. Some days I'll be flexible. And that's why I openly share. I'm not hundred percent strict carnivore because I don't want people to think dogma is what wins in the end. And that whole desire of perfection, like that is so eating disordered in my mind of if you mm-hmm. have to follow a diet perfectly, maybe while you're healing therapeutically, you may have to work with someone to be closer to perfect, but it's not perfection that I think allows people to heal. It's the consistency that's important. And I just, I I think it's great. Oh, a thousand percent. You know, I think there's certain like instances, um, like you said, for therapeutic things that you might be like, all right, for this set period of time, whether that's 30 days or a month, uh, several months that, cause I'm really wanting to be in like a deep ketosis, but outside of that, you know, I, I have days, especially during really heavy training, you know, we're getting to our a weekends can be like last weekend, you know, 25 miles, uh, on Saturday and then 15 on Sunday. So like 40 miles within two days, like I'm eating a lot of food. <laughs> and so it would be silly for me to be like, well, I'm not going to eat that. Or I can't eat that. You know, uh, there, I always say there's no gold medals for being you know, pure keto or pure carnivore, or whatever. The, the goal is to have a foundation, right. To have this basis that I, and that's what I feel very fortunate that I have. I, I'm confident that, you know, for the rest of my life, I'll be eating animal based, very high fat, high protein, and then rounding out the rest of my nutrition with carbohydrates to fuel my diet, my goals. But certainly if, you know, I stopped doing ultra marathons, I imagine, you know, how I eat would, uh, would shift. Yeah. I think of our, uh, the things that we prioritize individually is like a, is a pie chart, if you, if you will. And then based on what you're prioritizing more on that pie chart, it would be different in terms of what you allocate. So if you're prioritizing ultra marathon or um, marathoning, then maybe the diet part isn't as the perfect thing. It's because your main focus on is on exercise. And for me right now, it's finishing my book. So that is taking precedence. So the diet just needs to make sure that I'm sustained to write the book, right? So I just need state yes. based on your priorities of that pie chart your diet will shift. And that, that is what I consider healing, not this dogma of, I can only OMAD, I can only eat beef. I can only eat this. Now, again, if you're healing, it's a different story, but thinking longevity, 20, 30, 40 years. Like I feel that if I asked you this question right now, you would say yes, but could you eat this way, whatever way you're eating flexibility wise for the next 40 years? Yes. And and you nailed it. And that's why, because there is, there's openness, there's flexibility, there's knowing that it will change, evolve, whatever, you know, um, even like right after race, I take a couple of weeks off, I'm going to eat a little bit differently, you know, I'm going to probably reduce my carbs, and then I'm going to leverage them back up when I'm training more, you know, because like you said, it's not this, it has to be exactly this way, but it's this, this foundation that, and it's so sustainable, because, you know, I, I enjoy foods, I'm not eating. I mean, that's another reason I think the nutrition guidelines have been such an epic failure. Is because the food is bland and terrible. <laughs> you know, they're not. It's not. It's not sustainable when you're trying to eat this low-fat ridiculousness. No, I totally agree. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Where can people find your study? I know you mentioned the books at Amazon, but um, if you can just share and where to find. Yeah, you. yeah. So, um, the Dietitian's Dilemma is my first book, and that's up on Amazon. The Fox Family Food Fight. I'm super excited about that. I'm excited. And, yeah, thank you. Um, I'm on Instagram at run, eat, meet, repeat. My website, the dilemma.net. If you have any questions, you can shoot them through there. Also um, on Twitter, Michelle Hearn RD. Okay. And I'll put all of it in the show notes. And then the study, I'll just link it in the show notes as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can, I can send you the link. Like science that. direct thought. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Well, I'll put that in the show notes as well. It's uh, 
thank you for all the work you're doing and the advocacy you have. I mean, even when you were uh, g- trying to get more meat to the underserved, I just, I love the work that you do and I'm always a big fan. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay, guys, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I always enjoy talking with Michelle. She's so much fun. She is the real deal in person and online. And I love the work that she is doing to help improve people's lives because she has lived it and gone through it, not only as a registered dietitian, but in her own healing journey. Make sure to support her book as Amazon will pick up and advertise books based on the traction. It is a rare book that supports eating meat and supporting the body. Okay, guys, make sure to eat a lot of meat. Take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you later. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com slash groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and The Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.